Growth and change are a natural part of starting and building a business. And sometimes it all goes smoothly. Other times it can be a little bit painful. But ultimately, we have to figure this stuff out in order to succeed as copywriters and as business owners. Our guest for today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is returning once again to share what she's learned as she's built her copywriting agency and helped dozens of high-end clients build their businesses too. Strategist and copywriter Brittany McBean is here to share what's happened to her business over the last couple of years, why she hit pause on her YouTube channel, the struggles of managing employees, mental health, and a lot more. It's another great interview that you're definitely going to want to stick around for. But before we jump into the interview... This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind for copywriters, content writers, strategists, marketers, you name it. If you're a creative and you're building a service-based business and creating scalable offers or products, new podcasts, you would be a good fit in this room. Brittany McBean, today's guest, is a Think Tank alumni member, so we were lucky enough to work with her in the Think Tank. And we do have a retreat coming up in our Think Tank. It's a virtual retreat coming up June 1st and 2nd. So if you would like to be a part of that virtual retreat and meet our entire Think Tank crew, it's not too late. You can you can um, reach out to us and we can chat about whether or not the Think Tank makes sense for you. Um, one thing I feel like we don't typically talk about when we talk about the Think Tank, Rob, is what new members can expect when they join and how we help them immediately over the first month. And so I thought we could just touch on that real quick because I feel like it's always mysterious when you join a mastermind, kind of like what's actually gonna happen when you get in and walk into the room. So Rob, what do you feel like um, works well for new members when they join us that maybe they don't know or expect? Yeah, well, a, a lot of masterminds, it's just a group of people that get together and talk and, you know, share ideas or whatever, but we've combined mas a mastermind with coaching. And so we start out with two pretty intensive calls where we help everyone set goals. And it's not the simple, you know, how much do you want to make, move on, you know, what do you want to do with your business? We go really deep and we you know, challenge each person who joins the think tank to think bigger, to think differently about their business. And then we sit down with them and really scope out how they can achieve one of these big goals that they've set. We come up with a strategy for achieving it. We identify things that might get in the way, how they might move forward, really to set it, them up for a big success, hopefully in the first few months that they're with us. And then we can repeat that process over and over, over the year or two or three that they're in the think tank to help them continue to keep growing their businesses. So we look for some wins pretty fast because we want to make sure that everybody who joins is really seeing the changes, the growth that they want. Yeah. So and that looks like three, typically three different sessions with the two of us, with at least one of us on those sessions, helping you figure out the vision for your business, the next stage of your business, and then creating a focus map that will help you get there and achieve that aspiration that you set for yourself over the next three to six months. And so those are three really valuable sessions that I think um, surprise and delight many of our members. And so that's something that could help you if you feel like you're not sure about what you're doing next, or maybe you do have a clear vision, but you're not sure how to get there and how to get 
out of your own way or deal with those obstacles. So if that's the kind of thing that sounds like it might be helpful to you and you are excited to participate in the virtual retreat and possibly even join us at uh, some of the upcoming in-person retreats, you can learn more at the copywriter thinktank.com. And I said the, but it's actually copywriterthinktank.com. That's the kind of thing we help copywriters do in the think tank. So if you, if this sounds of interest to you, you can find out more at copywriterthinktank.com. Okay, let's get into our episode with Brittany. Britt, tell us what you've been doing since the last time you were on the podcast. What's been going on? Oh, a lot. Last time I was here, I thought I knew everything. <laughs> I thought you did too. I thought you did too. But but we've got you back because now you do know everything and we can correct everything that we talked about oh. before that was wrong. No, talking to you feels like like Neil deGrasse Tyson asking oh. a five-year-old like why bubbles are pretty. Like, okay, I can't think of a more uh, incorrect analogy that I've ever heard in my life, but whatever. But it's a fun one. I like that one. Yeah. It's really fun. No, I mean, I I think all of your, or a large majority of your listeners have experienced just the, the wild up and down of the last three years where like we thought we were in a recession, but then actually it turned out we were in this boom that like all the money was coming in, but then we were actually really burnt out because we were doing all of this work for all the money. And then the actual recession hit and now like the carton of eggs is the same price as Alexis. And oh, by the way, there's AI. And um, so I've just been riding the roller coaster in the ups and the downs and um, we've grown our team and then shrunk the team and then grown the team and then shrunk the team and um, launched some new products and then went a little bit heavier on client work and then heavier on products and just ebbs and flows and all of it. Okay. <laughs> well, we're exactly the same. It's been crazy for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about how you have managed the roller coaster that you just described. Like how, how do you approach it knowing that there's constant change ups and downs, um, to make strategic decisions about the business and know when to do, to, when to grow, when to shrink. I think one thing I'm realizing now that like things have slowed down is pausing and looking back and realizing that like a lot of decisions weren't massively strategic. There was a lot of intentionality and thought behind them, but because things were growing really fast, um, there was a lot of in the moment, like, let's just do this thing. And it doesn't mean that everything was done last minute and in a panic or just reactionary, but there wasn't a lot of, I want to do this thing. And then like a year later, let's make it happen. It was like, let's make a project plan and in 12 weeks, make this happen kind of thing. Um, and now I get to have that really strategic, what do I want this to be? Does anything need to like massively shift or change? Um, I think that there's, there's the thing that I've always been the most intentional about and strategic about is, is how we work with our clients. Because I think that that's a thing that since I started doing and have, I'm still doing. And every single time we've been able to look back and say, what could we do differently? What can we do differently? How can we optimize? What can we tweak? Um, is there anything that needs to change? Can we add, can we add by subtraction? Um, so that's, I think that's always been where the most like thought and intentionality has been, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been a deep level of intentionality elsewhere when it comes to like hiring or when it comes to um, 
teaching or products or um, the program that I mentor other copywriters or anything like that. Um, but a lot of those things just grew and happened very quickly. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's definitely been crazy. While we're talking about intentionality with clients, uh, let's let's go deeper on that because you don't necessarily work with clients one and done. I, I'm sure there are a few that are like that, but you tend to work with them over and over as launches grow, as products change. How do you build trust with clients? You know, what are you doing to create that high end touch, the extra things that make keep clients coming back to you over and over? Yeah, it's it's actually really surprising how sometimes we'll work with a client for like six months and it's that was their first contract and and the proposal included, you know, three funnels and it's a fifty thousand dollar contract and it spans six months and that's like that's the only work we'll do together. But they'll refer three or four other people to me. Um, and then I'll have clients who will work on one campaign one year and then they'll come back for another one or they'll that launch will go really well. And then they're like, great, let's do a front, you know, top of funnel funnel, or let's do a downsell or so. Um, and you know, I do have one and done clients, but over, we have a long project together. And then there's ones that come back again and again. And the ones who we only work together once, but they refer a lot of people to me. Um, but because I don't have many short-term projects, it always feels like that, that trust is built there. Um, I really do think it starts from like really from the first touch point, even before they get on a sales call with me, we have a highly automated um, inquiry process. It's not, it's nothing crazy. It's nothing that anyone listening couldn't do. I mean, we use HoneyBook and Zap, you know, and like, I, I couldn't set those things up myself, to be honest. I did hire people to set them up, but it, it's nothing that like, that isn't accessible to anyone. Um, but just these touch points where my clients are never asking what's coming next. Did they get my inquiry? Did they get my email? When are we meeting? Where is that link? You know, everything is, they're immediately met with a response and um, th they just never have to ask the question, what's next? Like every question is answered before they even know to ask it. And I think that that builds trust even without knowing it and at least prevents that anxiety from ever starting so that by the time we get to something like strategy, there was never anxiety there to begin with. So they never have a reason to not trust me. So we're already entering in to the relationship with a spirit of co-collaboration. And we're never, there is never a conversation of whose idea wins. There's never, we're never playing a game to win. There is no winner. You know, it's, it's a collaboration. And, and if we can't decide, then we just say, well, let's test. And if they don't want to test and they get to win because it's their copy and it's their, it's their um, product at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, those, those things build an immense level of trust. And, and that honestly is like the lowest hanging fruit, even though the tech feels really hard and difficult. Um, it is the easiest, but, you know, on things like the sales call or discovery call, um, and on things like our, you know, brand strategy calls, even just hearing them and making them feel really seen and making them feel really heard and not not pushing back and not trying to prove that I am smart or I am right. Um, and even if they're doing things that are like mildly problematic or just like not great best practices, you know, not trying to look like an authority, but being an authority as a partner, you know, and just saying like, wow, it really sounds like your priority is, is taking care of your students or your buyers. And it really sounds like you've tried to do this in X, Y, and Z way. Um, 
maybe unintentionally it's caused X, Y, and Z, and maybe we can try this instead. And so it's those little things like that. Um, and even just when they're talking, you know, even reading through their their questionnaire before we hop on a call and being able to summarize and reflect that back to them or listening to them speak and being able to do what we do best as copywriters and summarize that and reflect that back and say, so it's almost like X, Y, and Z. It's those little, little moments where they're just like, you get me. You're like, I, I wouldn't have even known to have said that myself. That's exactly how I feel. Um, it, it's those little things where, like I said, like the anxiety doesn't even start so that by the time we get to that, am I going to implement that thing? I paid you tens of thousand dollars to do for me, or am I going to do what I've always done before? There, there isn't, there is no game of tug of war. Yeah. And I I definitely want to hear more about your process and how you show up as more of a strategist and how you deliver those deliverables. But I want to back up and I want you to brag a little bit about like just what you've been able to do. You mentioned growing and shrinking, but can you just brag about what you've been able to do over the last few years with specific wins that you're comfortable sharing? Is anybody comfortable sharing wins? Uh, you know, it's, no, but we're I do. Force, we're going to force you actually share the ones you're not comfortable, the wins I, you're you're excited about. I just want to set the tone for like, not this is why we brought you back, but what you've been able to do during kind of a crazy, you know, time on this roller coaster with specific examples. Yeah, I I pat myself on the back the most with the stuff I see my clients doing because that's where I'm like the peacock feathers go up, but I'm like, if everybody else, I did it. <laughs> If that makes sense. Um, especially like when the economy is crashing and everybody else is like, my funnel's not working. And then I'm optimizing a client's funnel right now. And she has a $1,500 offer. And so I was like expecting it's evergreen. I was like, I was like, all right, sales page, we're probably going to hit like 3%, you know, which I'm like, I think is great. <laughs> and her March number, she had an 18.37% conversion for an evergreen funnel. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I can quit now. That's the stuff that I feel like really good bragging about the business stuff. I always feel like there's so much context um, and some of it is mine to share and some of it isn't right. When there's like so much team involved in that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that always looks the sexiest was in 2019, you know, this is like the story that everybody like, it's the easiest one to share it. When I first started my business, I took home after taxes the $7,000. And then um, in 2020, I took home $186,000. And that's like that huge arc, right? But also, <laughs> no big deal. Yeah, no big deal. But that context of 2020 was, it was 2020. And also, in order to do that, I had to say yes to every client coming in the door, which I don't regret. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I had to frantically hire six subcontracted writers whom are all still good friends and people I love and admire. And I got very, very lucky. Um, But then in 2021, I was able to hire um, a full-time employee. And so that feels like a huge win. Just I hired someone full-time. I have met payroll every week of every month of every year since then. It's a big deal. For both of us. Like I've never not taken home a paycheck. He has never not taken home a paycheck. And even that just feels really... I don't know. Like I'm, I'm very proud of that. Uh, he is our copy lead and um, client project manager. So he really helps me run the client side of the business. And if I didn't have him, I couldn't have my business, but 
a copywriter could could have my copywriting business with just one person and HoneyBook. He is that one person because I have a product side of the business that I'm that I'm very passionate about. Um, we have an operational assistant that I've had with me for three years, um, an OBM that I've had with me for three years. So, I mean, that's you know that's like fifty years in online business years. So I'm I'm really really proud of that. Um, we had a $235,000 a year, which like, that's not a million dollars. It's not $500,000, but it also felt sustainable. It felt good. Um, our clients saw numbers that I was really, really, really proud of. Um, we were able to take vacations. We were able to do those things that felt, that felt sustainable. And, um, I had, when I was in the think tank, you know, I had launched my YouTube channel on my list and I have launched this program that I teach on my list, um, and was able to do those things and have been able to sustain those for the most part and take a break from YouTube. That started to burn me out a little bit, but I'm back. Um, but have been able to sustain those and, and do them at a quality that I'm really proud of and get results for the students. I didn't get results, but the mentorship and the education that we've put in there has gotten results that I'm really proud of. And so that's what I feel good about bragging about. So along with that, you mentioned the ups and downs and there've been some pretty big downs, not just for you, but for everybody Oh yeah, to match all of, all of the ups. So, so we're not just painting the prettiest picture. Let's, uh-huh. let's get real here. Let's talk about some of the struggles that went along with those huge wins. Yeah, no, I'm not trying to like gaslight everyone like like JLo, you know, when she tells us that like like she looks the way she does because of like clean eating and like olive oil. Yeah. That, well, I mean, yeah, it works for all of us. I, mm-hmm. I'm the same. I'm the same way. Yeah. J Lo. Yeah, um, really well, I gained 30 pounds during the pandemic. Um, so that that was great. None of my pants fit anymore. Um, no, so Honestly, personally, while all of that business stuff was going really, really well without me even knowing it, like the mental health stuff was kind of plummeting. And I kind of woke up in January and realized that I I think it was having like this, this January of 2023, it was having, I took a full two and a half weeks off, like did not open my laptop. My team did not open our laptops. And, um, I just kind of realized like, I hate everyone and everything. I like working because I'm good at it. And I never want to not be working. And I'm not a workaholic. Like I stop working at four. I do not work weekends. Um, that's not hustling stopped a long time ago. That's not a thing, but just really, really unhappy when I was parenting, when I was being a spouse, when I was doing anything else. Um, and so I upped all of my medication and started going to the gym and um, started <laughs> doing therapy more than just once a month again. And, um, so that was, that was a weird thing that that was happening while the business stuff was going really well. And I kind of didn't even notice it. Um, but also like, you know, I mentioned growing our team, I, I opened up two new seats in 2022 and, um, one position, we went through two people in like six months and it did not go, it did not go well. And both of them were really great people and just not good fits for the business. And, that resulted in me spending a lot of money that we didn't necessarily see the ROI that we needed. It was a marketing position. And so it's something that you do need to see that ROI. People aren't necessarily ROI, but that position is one that where you, you do need to see that. Um, and not seeing that like in an economic downturn was really hard. Um, and then the other one was an EA position and, and we went through two before we found the right person. So 
that was happening at the same time, that was really, really hard, just like onboarding and either letting people go or having people quit and feeling like, is it me? Am I the problem? Like Taylor Swift style. Um, like, oh, I have, I have this, these teammates that have been with me for three years. That makes me feel really great. And then we try to bring on new people and everyone is leaving. What's going on here? Um, I've, I've had to fire clients. You know, I have all of these clients who think I'm great. And so I just get this idea that like, I'm the best copywriter in the world. And then I turn in a sales page and this client threatens to like sue me because my copy is so bad. So, oh, wow. um, it, you know, it, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> <laughs> Can't win all of them. Yeah. Um, okay. So because you mentioned the example of hiring these team members did not work out, I feel like that's something that grabs my attention just, and I don't even know what the question is other than like, what would you do? Would you do anything differently? What advice would you give to other copywriters who are hiring and who are struggling with something similar or nervous about dealing with the same thing? Yeah. Even the process of yeah. finding people, right? I, yeah. I think it is the process of finding people like that. That is it. Um, I don't know who said it first or I would give them credit, but the adage of like hire slow, fire fast, I think is everything. Like it is all about that job description and it is well, it's not all about, it is the job description. It is being honest with what you really want and need. It's hard when it's a first role or a first time you're opening up that role. And so that job description may not be accurate with what the role is going to be. And so even being open and honest with that and letting someone know, like, this is how the team functions. If you have a team, these are the systems that we do or do not have in the business. This role could expand. Is that something you're comfortable with? What are the boundaries? What are the limitations? Because if somebody's like, I will never do X, and you're like, mm, this role could expand into that, and I just don't know it yet, that's really important. Um, but also, like as a CEO, you cannot just be hiring like Franken roles, and you cannot just be like, hey, I'm I'm just gonna like open up this role, and if it expands, and like I'll just get this person to do it, and I'll just give them more hours, I'll just pay them more. Like you can't do that to people. You know, people need to know what their jobs are, they need to know what they're being hired for. But having that job description. Um, having that hiring process be unbelievably thorough, um, narrowing it down, doing those three interviews, doing multiple interviews, like, like hiring slow and, and going for fit. Like once you have those three finalists and any one of them can do the job, first of all, make sure any one of them can do the job. And then you have to go for fit where we went wrong with the marketing positions. Um, one person was a great person, but not fully qualified for that role. They have a lot of skill in an adjacent area. And one person was fully qualified um, and a really good fit, but maybe would have been a better fit. These were contractors, by the way, and like a, like a full-time position where they were working for, for one, um, uh, like one employee or one employer. Um, rather than running a hiring project, which we normally do, my OBM would run the hiring project and you can pay someone to run a hiring project for you. And I recommend that because hiring is a skill and I'm not good at it. Like it is not a skill I have. Um, but when we knew we were opening this marketing coordinator position, we didn't really have the capacity to run the hiring project. So we went like, I know, I know this person, or I just ran this hiring project, this person, popped up in it. They weren't a great fit over there. Maybe they can come over here. Did an interview. Great. You're a great fit. Come on. We're about to do this launch. Like we're in a hurry. And it didn't work out. And it didn't work out twice. That's a lot of time onboarding. 
that you're paying someone for. And then a lot of time I was paying my team to play catch up and pick up and check up on. And so I was paying twice and, and that's not fair to this other person who just got hired for the wrong role and has this negative experience. And so hiring slow and having the right person doing the hiring, if, if you're not good at it. Uh, well, you mentioned Brett Franken jobs, uh, which is kind of interesting because when you run a small business like what you have, in some ways, every job is a Franken job. You know, everybody has to sort of be willing to shift around or, you know, like take on things that might not be in the strictest, you know, definition of a particular role, yeah. especially if you're working at a big company. So how do you, how do you navigate that tension? Um, between, hey, this is what I want you to do. But occasionally, yeah, you are going to have to step up and do some things. Maybe not things you're totally uncomfortable with, but things outside your you know usual skill set or your usual daily duties. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think it comes down to, again, like boundaries and skill set, right? So like having that conversation, like what, what would you like to never do again? Like my EA has said like, I would like to never do social media again. I'm like, great, I'm never going to ask that of you, right? Like if that's, if that's a boundary and you're the right fit for my team and I need you and, and I want you on this team. Like I'm never going to ask that of you. And there really isn't anyone on my team who's good at social media, including myself. So we just don't do it. And that's okay. Like that is okay. Right. And, and if it's like, Hey, I can you, I've created everything. Can you just plug this into later? You know, that doesn't feel like it's really abusing her boundary and she's comfortable with that. But if I'm like, can you go create this graphic and write this copy and then engage on Instagram? That's not, that's not cool. Right. Um, but again, that comes down to the job description. You have to make sure that what is in that role as described is that that person is applying for that, right? That it's all, it's all stated up front. Um, and that, and that's somewhat aligned, right? So if you're hiring a tech VA and you're saying, Hey, like you're going to be responsible for the tech, but you might also be, um, like in my inbox, right? Like just making sure that they're comfortable with that and that you're clear on about how many hours a week that would look like and about how many um, emails are coming in your inbox a week. And hey, you're not going to be responding to my emails. You don't have to worry about that. I don't need you to respond to my emails. Can you just be gathering them for me and also fixing broken links and also setting up these zaps and also, you know, those kind of things. Um, but I do think it has to do with uh, like asking for skill and level of comfort and boundaries and making sure that it's all stated up front and not just adding on things once they're in the door. That's not cool. And I know this is getting granular when we're talking about hiring and firing, but I think it's an important conversation. Um, how do you have those conversations when you start to feel like something's off? Like, do you prefer to give people another chance to have a call a meeting and address it and then see how it goes for three more months? Or how do you handle that? And what would you recommend? Yeah, I always assume I'm the problem because I usually am. Um, if somebody's not doing well, like if I hired them because they have the skill and something's not going well, either something's going on in their life, which they are under no obligation to share with me. But if they do, then I'm going to adjust expectations. Like I'm not unreasonable and they don't, nobody has to share personal details. But you know, if somebody says, hey, things are off at home or something's going on, like, cool. The last two weeks didn't happen. Right. Or like this, whatever you get a pass, but like, if something's going on, I'm going to assume it's me that I didn't give you what you needed to succeed. Um, and I'll, and I'll usually own that, you know? And so the first, the first like crucial conversation is going to be me asking a question and me saying, 
hey, XYZ happened or XYZ didn't happen. What can I do next time? What can I communicate next time to make sure you have everything you need to succeed? Um, That's always my first starting place. If they say nothing, sometimes that's a red flag because I'm like, well, this didn't happen. So if you didn't have what you needed, like why didn't it happen, right? And I've never, I don't think I've ever gotten upset at someone for asking something of me, calling me out, like, I'm pretty good at messing up. Like no one can ruin my business faster than me. So I'm more than happy for somebody to tell me I'm doing something wrong. But that's always my first place. It's just like, what can I do differently next time? What can I communicate? Or what can what system can we set up so that you have what you need to succeed next time? If something's still happening, you know, just saying, hey, this is becoming a pattern. What I would prefer that they own the solution. So ideally identifying the problem. So that can happen. I would like to correct privately and praise in public. So I'm not likely to jump into ClickUp and say, hey, what's going on here? You know, but maybe on a Zoom meeting, like I noticed last week this happened. What do you attribute that to? So if they can identify the problem, then I can say, what do you think would be the best solution? And then maybe we can collaborate something. And and if they can own that, then there's a lot more like accountability um, and ownership there. If we get to that point and something's still not happening, then I'm probably going to step in and say, okay, I need you to put together a 30-day plan so that these things don't happen again. After those 30 days, we're going to re-examine. And then either that person is going to decide that they really want to be on this team and want to work together and we're going to collaborate on that 30-day plan or they're going to be like, you know what? F you, I'm out. This is too hard. Um, And at the end of those 30 days, if it's still not working, that's when we're going to have a crucial conversation. And I'm just going to say, I'll pay you through the next 30 days and you can say F you, you're out now, or you can bill me those hours for the next, you know, 30 days and do whatever, whatever you need. Um, it's kind of how that, that looks ideally. I mean, from, from some, uh, perspective, that sounds a little harsh, but on the other hand, if you're not like that, you're basically enabling a team to fail, right? And you're not just failing for your business, but for your client's business. And so I actually really appreciate, um, really how upfront you are about that. And it's probably something that a lot of us need to be implementing into our businesses, especially if we're working with other people. It's almost a tough love approach. I've learned that it never goes away. It always compounds. And I really, these conversations never feel like tough love. I don't think it does on, on either end. I don't, I certainly don't want to speak for someone, but like, I really try to approach these conversations with like the assumption of good intent and collaboration. So rather than saying, Hey, you screwed up last week, you know, one approaching every situation. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like not spaghetti, like waffle, like everything is isolated, right? Like this isn't about everything that happened in the past, unless it was like, this one specific thing happened three times, right? But saying, hey, I noticed that a lot of details were missed on this one deliverable. Um, can you let me know like what, what you think that was attributed to and maybe what I can do next time? Like, did you need more lead time on that? Did I give you too short, too quick of a deadline? Were there too many other tasks on your plate? Do we need to reallocate or reprioritize? Um and then I can help them figure out like, like what's going on. And if they need to ask me a question, cause I want, I want them to own the solution. You know, do you, 
Do you need to say, Brittany, this is absolutely unreasonable. I cannot do all of these things in this timeline. This is ridiculous. Please change this, right? Like I can help you reprioritize. Are you having trouble um, just prioritizing your own schedule? How can we help you adjust that? Are there just other things going on in life and you just need a lighter workload this week? You know, like what is the team blowing you up, asking you questions? And I didn't know that, in which case they need to just go Google something and leave you the heck alone, right? Um, so I really like just always approaching those with the assumption of good intent and just saying like, how can, how can I help you? Like, what am I not seeing from where I sit? What notifications am I not getting? Um, and not saying you screwed up, you missed all the details, you weren't paying attention, you missed this, just this thing didn't go as planned, or this wasn't ideal. What am I missing? How can I help? Um, and rather than me diagnosing the problem, because I could be way off, right? Like her grandmother could have just passed and they don't feel comfortable sharing that with me. So if I say like, you have too much work on your plate, then all of a sudden we're working towards a solution that solves the problem that doesn't exist. It's been a while since we've had Brittany on the podcast. Uh, Rob, I'm just curious what stood out to you from this conversation. Well, every time we talk to Britt, it's interesting. I'm reminded how intentional she's been about building her business, exactly the kinds of clients that she wants to work with, exactly how she can help them. And as she was walking through, you know, all the things that she does to make her clients love her from the very first touch, from automating different things. She uses HoneyBook, I think, uh, but automating the touch points so the clients are never wondering where they are in the process. She's always doing things that build trust along the way. She's reflecting things back to her clients that she's hearing from them so that they don't even have an opportunity to build any kind of anxiety or distrust in the process. And it's one of those things that I think a lot of copywriters don't give a lot of thought to. You know, we we work really hard on the front end when we're trying to land a project, when we're trying to connect with that client. But once a project starts, we let a lot of that stuff slide. And if you want to work on the kinds of projects that Brittany's working on with her agency and literally charging 20, 30K on a project, these are the things that start to make the difference. This is the difference between working with a high-end client and somebody who's going to pay you a few hundred dollars or maybe a few thousand dollars for the work that you do. Yeah, and it's great that we were able to talk about her team because I think sometimes when we hear about success from other copywriters and we're like, wow, Brit, look what Brittany's doing. She's making so much money and she seems like she's excellent at everything she's doing. It's also good to just hear she's not doing it alone and you know, she's the first person to praise her team. And so I love that she broke down her team members and you know that she has a copy director, an operational assistant, an OBM. She's hiring or she was hiring for an executive assistant and a marketing coordinator. And so there's a lot of people who go into making this a success so everything runs smoothly. And I think that's just good to know whether or not you want to build a team. It's just good to know that you're not expected to do everything. And if you are doing everything, um, maybe you could use some help and think about who else you could bring on your team. Yeah, teams make a massive difference and getting the right people, helping with the right things can you know, really move you forward. What else stood out to you, Kira? I mean, this is why I love Brittany, period, is just she's so truthful and 
honest and transparent about the good and the bad uh, in her business and her struggles. So I think for me, it's just more comforting to hear her talk about her ownership of her success and her ownership of her business. You know, the fact that she says, I always assume I'm the problem because I usually am. And that's how she approaches conflict with her team. And it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean there aren't issues to work through. It doesn't mean she doesn't have processes in place to deal with conflict um, with team members. But I love that she puts herself first. And, you know, she even said, no one can ruin my business faster than me. And I I relate to that uh, in such a big way. Um, So she really is owning her business success and failures. And it's not easy to do. I mean, I've run away from that ownership for years and am only now trying to really step into that ownership. Yeah. I mean, being the CEO of your own business is a big deal. And it's a mindset shift that I think most of us have to make, you know, once we realize, oh, making a living from copywriting isn't as easy as maybe I thought it was going to be. And there's a lot that's involved with that. But I I was actually listening to uh, a book recently where somebody was talking about how uh, they were talking to their coach about what was going on in their business. And, you know, they started identifying all of the reasons why they hadn't reached their goals. You know, the economy was hard and that sales were down because of all this stuff that happened. And the question that they were asked is, well, what did you do about it and really trying to reflect back onto the owner of the business. It's like, look, weird stuff was happening all the time. So you can't use that as an excuse. You know, how are you going to adjust? How are you going to change your strategy, change the products that you offer, change your clients, change the way that you're approaching things in order to overcome all of these challenges that are outside of the business. And that's one thing that I think Brittany's perspective on that is, okay, if it starts with me, then that means that I've got to be the one that's thinking about, you know, what happens if this uh, relationship with an employee doesn't work out? Or what happens if what is created isn't hitting the mark for the client? How do I jump in and, and fix it? You know, what happens if we have a slowdown in the number of clients that come in? How, what do I have to do in order to overcome that so that the business still survives, so that I'm still able to make a living? And that approach, thinking about our business from the, the CEO level as opposed to, well, I'm just writing copy for clients is I mean, they're so different and it makes all the difference when it comes to success. Yeah. Or just trying to outsource your problems and hire, hire people to solve those problems for you. And you can hire people to help support you as you solve those problems, but you can't expect them to solve it if you're not willing to step in and own, own the majority of that problem. She also said, you know, she was talking about how she has all these clients who love her, right? That's she's got long-term clients. She's great at what she does. Um, she, you know, felt like she's the best copywriter in the world. And then the next client threatens to sue her because the, they felt like the copy was so bad. And it was cool that she shared that with us. I think it's not always fun to share on a podcast and publicly those projects that don't go well um, that could you know, could impact your reputation, but she's so open with it. And it's just a great reminder. We know Brittany's great at what she does. She knows that, but everyone can have a bad client. Everyone can have an experience that just doesn't work well for many different reasons. Um, And just keeping that in perspective, because 
we know many copywriters in our programs and the think tank and the accelerator have dealt with client situations that go horribly wrong. And I've seen it affect those people, some of them to the point where they question what they're doing, think about quitting, um, or just slow down completely and it impacts their finances. So let's just keep in mind that we all deal with this at some point, even if you're a top copywriter like Brittany, you're still going to find that client who sues you <laughs> and thinks your copy is horrible. It's, yeah, that, that's a, a really good reminder. And along with that, Brittany was really honest about the mental health struggles, you know, a lot of the stuff that uh, she's been dealing with. But I think we've seen this broadly across a lot of copywriters' businesses. Uh, you know, the last few years have been really hard and it has taken a toll. And it's really easy to say, well, you know, you've got to adjust or you know, get out and take a walk, whatever. And all of those things, exercise therapy support, she talked about matter and help, but just even recognizing that this has been hard on a lot of people for a long time. And it's not just, you know, if you're feeling this, it's not just you. It's, uh, you know, you and I have felt this in our business. Uh, and we've talked with literally dozens of other copywriters who have struggled uh, with mental health, but also with all of the other things going on in the economy. I appreciate Brittany's willingness to talk about that and be super honest about it as well. Yeah, she's always she's always willing to to address it and address the elephant in the room. And just kicking off the interview, talking about that roller coaster was a relief. Even just listening to her, it's like, oh yeah, we have gone through a lot. You know, no no wonder I have bad days. No wonder we're where we are. So it's it's great when we can talk about it and not just move forward without reflection. All right, let's get back to our interview with Brittany to find out how she grew into her role as CEO and leader in her business. So this all makes sense and it all like it clicks for me, but I'm also, I think part of this is you bring this natural leadership uh, and CEO-ness to what you're doing, which you've grown into. And I'm just wondering like what's helped you grow into this role to be able to handle conversations like that, to be more of a CEO in your business. What specifically has helped you over the last few years? Yeah, this doesn't feel natural at all. And this is why I like teach business instead of copy because I'm not good at this. So it's like a skill I've learned. So I feel like it's a skill I can turn back around and teach where I was like, I'm really, really good at strategy, like naturally. And I don't feel like I don't get, I shouldn't get credit for that. And I don't really know how to teach it because it's just like, a, just see it, you know? Um, and maybe I shouldn't have said natural, like on the outside, it sounds natural. So right, maybe right. it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of growing pains. I think when I first started hiring, I had this assumption that like outsourcing meant you didn't have to do a thing. And that sounded really exciting. And what I learned is that you just get a new job description. And, and that was hard. Like when you, hire a junior copywriter doesn't mean you are no longer a copywriter. It means you're now a copy chief, right? And when you hire an administrative assistant or when you hire a tech VA or when you, it doesn't mean that you don't do that thing, it means you're now CEO and you now have a new job role. It doesn't mean that you're off the hook. And so when I looked around and I had to be CEO, I was kind of pissed. <laughs> like I was like, I don't, I have to manage. I always said, I actually, I think last time I was on your podcast, I could be wrong. I think I said the words, I do not want to manage. I do not want to be a manager. Turns out I want a business that requires me to be a manager. So I had to learn. My husband is, he's been in school like 
his entire adult life. And he is um, in the licensure process, um, finalizing his license as a licensed therapist. And he's done a lot of training in like group work and group therapy. And um, he works specifically trained in a modality that is really, really good for leadership. It's actually used a lot in corporate leadership, even though it was originally started in the field of like addiction and recovery and substance use, which is what he works in. And he is a certified trainer in this modality. So most nights I just go down and I'm like, I'm really stressed out and annoyed at this person. And he's like, well, if you approach it like that, they're going to hate you and they're going to quit. So how about we just do this instead? And you actually treat them with like dignity or like, "Ah, I want this person to do this. And he's like, well, we can't control people. But if you have this conversation this way, you'll get the best outcome. So my husband is how I've learned most of it, honestly. And um, hiring people a lot smarter than me. My OBM is an exceptional manager and watching her lead and asking her to teach me. Um, if we're in a team meeting and I'm the smartest person in the room, like I've done something very wrong. So I think that there are probably additional resources out there that it's time for me to to go ahead and take advantage of and and continue to grow as a leader. And there's a lot of room there, but um, yeah, just in terms of having like really humanizing and empathetic and compassionate um, conversations that actually lead to like productive, I don't mean productive in like the efficient kind of way, like, like productive as in like, we all like our jobs and each other at the end of the day and really good work goes out the door. Those kind of conversations. Um, it's the guy I'm sleeping with. So, sounds like, yeah, key to business success is to marry a therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, who specializes in a modality that works for addiction recovery and corporate leadership. Exactly. You have a lot of crossover. A Venn diagram would be small. Yeah, yeah, but that person is the perfect spouse. Specific person. So I want to change our conversation just a little bit, the direction that we're going. When we first started talking, again, we were talking about some of the ups and downs, the economy, and just the weird changes that have happened, AI, all of that. And I think over the last year or two, you've talked a little bit about this, um, but courses, the way that courses are sold... Um, webinars, some of these traditional things have not been working as well as they were, say, two or three years ago. And that's not to say that some people aren't having tremendous successes and that some people are making them work. But overall, I've heard a lot of feedback from a lot of people say, ah, this time I really struggled and something's happening, something's going on. We just talk a little bit about what you're seeing happening there, maybe what's some of the causes of this whether it's course fatigue or, you know, other stuff that's going on, that's kind of impacting what a a lot of our clients do with their businesses. You know what? I feel like I've never thought of it this way. So this is very, uh, we're going to workshop this here. Maybe this won't make any sense, but I feel like it's almost like um, any kind of movie, like almost like hunger games where you have this, like this society that, they think that this is the way the world is, but then you have this like underground world where like the, the, like the rumblings are rising. That's kind of what I feel like is going on right now where the shininess, um, it's still working, right? Like, like those, the people with the big, big budgets who have been doing traditional 
the the strategies that we've used for so long, like it's not, it's not not working, right? And so it's really easy to discount this kind of stuff. Like, what I just made millions. Like, yeah, maybe a million less than last year, but like I just made millions. It's not like that society hasn't collapsed yet. But like if we're not listening to to the uprising, like we're really, really we're doing our businesses a disservice a disservice. Um, I don't mean like there's gonna be like an, an overthrow of society. There is just not, maybe not marketing, but we are perfectly capable of destroying our society on our own um, outside of marketing. Um, but it is really interesting to listen to the consumers. And so I have this benefit of doing the market research for our clients where we're talking to their audiences. And because my clients are running these evergreen funnels or are consistently launching and we're talking to these warm audiences, these are people who have been marketed to for quite some time. And so where we used to just speak to like the problem that my clients are solving with their solution, now we're almost seeing these two like parallel paths where we're not just speaking to the problem that people are solving with the product. Now we have to speak to the problem that people have with the other solutions they've tried. So these consumers are highly sophisticated and highly jaded, and they have tried a lot of solutions and they've been through a lot of marketing. And so they're calling BS. And so all this stuff that used to work, like there's multiple things going on, right? So like they have tried the other solutions that were supposed to change their lives and they didn't work. So the next person that says this is going to change your life, like they don't buy it anymore. They're really, really jaded. And we are just smarter as a society. Like the information being spread through TikTok is like next level. No wonder they're trying to shut it down because like these 25 year olds or these, these 19 year olds are running around with like more social awareness that most of us have at like age 35 because we, we just didn't, we just didn't know our consumers are just so much smarter. So we see these things and we're like, we just call BS. And so if we continue to disrespect our, our consumers intelligence by telling them like, you'll never get this price again. And by telling them, you know, like those things like this is going away and here's this timer ticking and, and all of that there, not only are they calling BS, but but now you've lost their trust and they're not interested in you. So there's all of that like jadedness and oversaturation going on on top of the fact that we have just been inundated with the like more stress and anxiety and PTSD than we ever have before. And we can't escape it. Like we cannot escape watching murder play out live in front of our lives, in front of our eyes. You know, we can't escape the death toll rising, you know, from the pandemic and the PTSD we all have from that, or like wondering if like not wearing a mask is going to kill our, our grandma or just, I mean, everything, everything that we have. And then just the, what's continuing, continuing. Right. So those are like, we can't consent to those emotions so anything in front of our face that gives us a negative emotion that we can turn off, we will. And so I hear people say things like, yeah, if you, like, if I see a countdown timer and I start to feel like my heart beat, like I'm out of there. I like, I'm closing it out. Or if you're telling me, and I'm not just, I'm not just harping on countdown timers and I'm like, we need critical thinking here. It's not just black and white, but yeah, yeah. You know, There's a place for everything, yeah. but it's, it's 
taking the step beyond manipulative. Right, yeah, yeah. right, right. But like, you know, if, if you're telling me I can never buy this again, that's fine. I'm going to go buy it from someone else because I know everyone's selling something, right? So um, there's so many things going on, but a lot of marketing strategies have relied on um, overriding critical thinking and increasing cortisol to encourage a buying decision. And our consumers are smarter and like, we're just too stressed out. Um, and so I think like, it's really just time to let the messaging do the work. And like, what if the urgency came from the messaging being so powerful that people are like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done living the way I'm living. Like I want that, you know? And what if like, but that's hard, Brittany, it, mm-hmm. that, that's, that actually means work. Yeah. Yeah. Which to me, I'm like job security because like, I love, I love chat GPT and I love the things that we can like do in terms of efficiency with our processes. And, and we're, I, right now we're still in the phase where it's taking us more time to figure out how to use it efficiently than it is to speed us up, but we'll get there. But like, it can't do that. And it can't do the nuance where somebody's like reading it and they're like, I never knew I even felt that way, but I've been feeling that way for years. Like, it can't do that. And that is more powerful than a value stack or, uh, you know, a discount or whatever those things are. Um, but again, like we have to introduce some critical thinking, like budget is a real thing. And, um, but I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of over this idea that like, marketing psychology is actual psychology because it just isn't and people don't like actually need urgency and scarcity to make a decision like research does not actually support that um and if that's something you want to do in your marketing that's fine that's not that's not inherently bad or wrong but it's just like research doesn't actually support that that's what helps people make impactful powerful changes quicker faster or more lasting um we just can't be lazy and but that's that's good because that gives us jobs. <laughs> well, can you talk more about what you are doing? You mentioned messaging, so we need to rely on the message more. But what else are you doing with your clients that is working that we could focus on um, if we're about to work on a launch? What should we be thinking about? Yeah, it, I mean, it really sounds simplistic, but just speaking to the readers like humans, like. I ask all of my clients and it it isn't ask because they can do whatever they want, but anyone who has a webinar, I just say like, I really recommend in the first three minutes, let them know that there's an offer coming and the price because they know that there is, this is not their first rodeo, but they're going to be sitting there thinking like, what's the catch and can I afford it? So in the first three minutes, just like, Hey, you guys know how this works. I can't teach you everything in 45 minutes. I'm going to teach you what you showed up to learn. And just so you know, I'm going to share this with you and it costs us much. Great. Now can we move on? Um, letting them know like, Hey, at the end of these five days, you can get this at any time. Like this doesn't actually go away, but this discount does. So if it's better for you to wait, amazing, like save your money and wait, you won't get this discount, but this will be here. If it's better for you to do it now and save this $500, you know, it's these, it's these little things that just, um, when people feel respected, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, thank you. And you see these things pop up in the chat transcripts, you know, when people are like, oh my gosh, thank you. I'm so tired of blah, blah, blah. Um, even the value stacking, when we take that out and we don't say this is worth $2,000, but nowhere does it have that price tag or are we selling it for that much? But, you know, my client might say in a webinar, something like this could cost you 
you know, because another coach sells it for this, or um, you could spend this many hours trying to find this on Google. We're like, that's real and not inflated. Um, where testimonials are closer to where they are than, you know, than where Gwyneth Paltrow is, right? Like these things that are just, um, and I don't think it's that hard. Like I, I wondered about last year, I was like, is it just that marketers are like, because we're aware and we're really, we're in this all day, every day, we see these things that other people don't. So like we get marketing and we're like, oh, I know what they're doing here. You know what I mean? But these other people, they don't. And so we don't have to worry about it. Um, I quickly realized that there isn't a lack of awareness. It's just different vocabulary. They just don't know what it's called, but they know what's going on. So if you're seeing something and you're rolling your eyes or you're skeptical, like they are too. Um, they think the testimonials are paid for or made up. Um, they assume that you're lying to them. So the less flashier the marketing and um, the less, you know, big and exciting and stressful it is, the more it's converting. Yeah, a lot, lot of good points there. Uh, while we're talking about writing copy, let, let's go a little bit deeper on that because uh, you don't just write copy. You do all kinds of strategy work and you said that comes naturally to you. Could you talk just a little bit about that process? When somebody comes to you and says, hey, I've got this thing I want to promote, where does your brain go and what do you start doing in order to make sure that everything is optimized, not just the words are pretty on the page? Yeah. Yeah. We don't start with copy. Uh, that would, that would be bad. I don't trust myself. I, I don't think I'm a good enough copywriter to just start with copy. And, and I think that would be doing my clients a disservice. Like if I was starting with copy formulas, I think we'd be in a really bad place. It is all about the messaging and it is all about the strategy. And then I'm like, all right, let's get copy. And then we can optimize copy once we know we've nailed the messaging. So unless we're doing something like a VIP experience, which is just like a slightly more accessible offer for people who can't afford a twenty-five dollars or $30,000 package, we're... I'm not like rewriting. We're not using any of their old copy, not because it's garbage, but just because like we need to start from scratch. And so, you know, we have our onboarding whole process where like we have our questionnaire and, and that really is where I'm just like, Hey, tell me who you are through your lens. And that's, that's giving me those questions to start asking them on like those strategy call or those, those like brand strategy calls where I'm just like, Oh, tell me more about this. And, um, tell me more about this part of your story. But really when we dive into like the audience research, that's where, that's where we start to understand the people. And so, um, we do the, like a cold audience data mine and that's your very standard, like Amazon book review, Facebook group, Reddit, that kind of just like high school girl, like internet stalking level, like data mine. Um, and that all goes into a spreadsheet and divided by like the negatives and the positives, right? Like fears, problems, and then all the, all the good stuff. Um, and then we do one-on-one -on -one interviews, pretty standard copywriters know how to do that. And then we do, um, the warm audience, um, surveys. So we'll send buyers and non-buyers. So we kind of get a feel for where everyone is at every point in the funnel. So all the way from cold to buyer. Um, and then the one-on-one -on -one interviews just give us that like nuance, um, more like slice of life. And so the stuff that we've, the more quantitative data, the surveys and the data mine, that all goes in spreadsheets. And the surveys were really able to tally up all of the messaging. And we create this like messaging hierarchy graph. So we get pie charts and we're like, Hey, 
your audience, like these were the top three problems that they're talking about. So like now we have messaging hierarchy, like these are the three things that we're leaning in on if, if and when we're talking about problem, like we aren't always right. Like they aren't always like maybe the problem's too sensitive and like, we're not really going there or we're only talking about the problem as it relates to the solution, but we can get a feel for, for that. Um, and you know, with the buyers, like now we know product or what features we're talking about. Cause if it didn't come up in the survey, then like, we're probably not leaning too heavy on that on the sales page. Um, so that gives us our, our messaging and making sure that like the lens through which we're presenting our client and their product aligns with what they're, what's going on with their audience. Um, and then from there, we're able to do the strategy. And so the strategy document that we hand over is really the messaging strategy. And it just kind of lays out, they get a research packet, which is really just like the analysis of everything that we learned. Um, and then the strategy is like, great, now what does this look like in message and at what parts of the funnel? And so, you know, the cold audience is like for Facebook ads and in your content and that kind of stuff. And um, if we have a show up sequence, like to a warm list or not show up, I'm sorry, like an invite sequence to a warm list. Um, and then how does that um, start to translate to like, if we have some sort of like launch event, like a webinar or a challenge and what is now they're a little bit warmer and we can kind of take the messaging journey through there. And then we're also strategizing based on like my client's goals. You know, if they're like, I, I need this to be hands off. This needs to be evergreen. Like I've been doing this for years. We're like, great. This is evergreen. Um, do your people want to wait or do they need this right now? Great. We're not doing a show up sequence. It's right. The webinar is right there for them. Or do they even want a webinar? Do they even need a webinar? Um, all those kinds of things. How many emails do they need a long sequence? Like, should we actually stretch this out and make it three weeks? Cause trust is really low and we're not going to ask them to buy a $3,000 product, you know, within 15 minutes of meeting you or, um, are they ready to go and they don't have time and we're doing four emails, you know, or four days. So that's kind of what we're thinking about in strategy. Um, one thing that we've been testing out right now, which is really interesting is doing more of like a I've been calling it a hybrid approach, but I don't even know if that's the right word for it, but just more like experiential launches where if our clients have a program that has some sort of support in it, it's not a DIY course, um, having something throughout the launch that gives the students a taste of that support because people are over DIY and they've also tried all the other solutions. So like, why are you different than this other coach I wasted $15,000 on? Um, so those kind of things go into the strategy and our, that is a document that our client edits. So they have to like, they provide their feedback on that and they have to sign off on that before we move to the sales page. And um, I tell my clients like the sales page is basically going to be this, this messaging document in copy form. And so like, if there's a disconnect, we've had a big, there's a big problem there. Um, so once they sign off on the strategy document, like we're kind of good to go. And there's not, a there's not a lot of, feedback or pushback. Um, I would say there's, there's edits, but not feedback, like, like big rewrites or anything going forward. Okay. You just gave me a bunch of ideas. <laughs> I'm going to implement. So thank you. Um, a lot of copywriters we talk to want to become strategists, or they may feel like they might be strategists right now, but they're timid and maybe less confident in owning that. Do you have advice as far as like what they could think about or try or baby step their way into really owning that strategy side of the copywriting project? I've met very few copywriters who are like, who don't have an opinion about how their clients should be doing something. 
And if you don't, and if you just want to do copy, that's fine, right? I'm not sure what that would look like because I've never done that. So like, I don't, I can't provide a ton of advice in that direction, but most copywriters are like, oh, I just wish they would do it this way. Or I think they should be doing this instead. And I'm like, well, got advice. You're, you're like, you're a strategist, baby. Um, I have found that CEOs at a higher level who have larger budgets or are doing bigger campaigns or larger list, they're really looking for like a peer and a partner. You know, they're looking to collaborate with someone at their level. Um, they are not looking to bring in like a junior copywriter or just a 1099. Like, yes, you are 1099, like legally, but they're not thinking of it this way. They are, they are wanting someone at that level who can come in and support them throughout this campaign. Um, if they're not for me, that's a red flag. So it kind of goes hand in hand with being able to charge a higher price tag is like, you're providing this support. And it, it also, I think helps you align with people who are already looking for, for that guidance, as opposed to people who like just want to do it their way and just want you to, um, you know, write them four emails and have it on my desk on Monday kind of thing. Um, I, it's just not optional for working with me, but it's, but I also don't present it that way. Like I never, it, there's not a conversation. It's not like, oh, we could do strategy, but, and I'm not like you got strategy sucks for you. I just on the sales call, it's very clear on my website, but on the sales call, you know, I always say, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you reach out. And then I'd love to share what working with us looks like. And then when it's time for me to share, I say, I, the process that I just shared with you, the research, the strategy, the copy, that's what I walk them through. And I say, this is what this looks like. Um, and I just share that that's what working with me looks like, um, where there isn't really another option. So I think even just having, maybe there's just like one extra step where it's after we do the research, we have a strategy call or there's a strategy document. And even if it's small and you're just kind of just saying this, is, there's this one part in our process where we collaborate and I share this and you sign off on it. Um, that also helps, I think, with the second half of the project so that things aren't changing and going crazy. You know, we're just like, yeah, you signed off on that. Sorry, you signed off on it. <laughs> Sucks for you. Yeah, brutal, brutal. Um, okay, so I have a final question. I, I'm guessing Kira has another final question for her, but I think I might have asked you some version of this the first time that you were on the podcast, Brittany. But if you could talk to Brittany of, you know, maybe Brittany just going into 2020, you know, before everything starts to fall apart, what advice would you give yourself in order to navigate the next couple of years, maybe just a little bit better? Um, that, and, I, and I asked that thinking, you know, the last three years have been kind of a mess. I'm guessing the next three years are going to be just as messy, maybe even more messy in ways that we can't even anticipate. So maybe some That's advice. really uplifting. Thank you, we, Rob. Some, well, yeah, advice that we can all put to use uh, in the coming months. <laughs> I don't know how universal this is, but I think I've always given myself a pass because I thought I was like bad at a lot. Um this is surprising. I've never cried on a podcast before, and I have no Rob's, intention. Rob is known for uh, bringing the tears. Yeah, I make, make people cry. That's his goal. <laughs> this is very surprising. Um, 
last year I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was like, add, add it to the mix. Like, great. Just put it in the cocktail. Um, but it also made a lot of things make sense for me. And I mean, I was always the student who like every parent teacher conference, like Brittany's not living up to her potential, which is a completely unmeasurable goal. It means absolutely nothing. And I think nobody should ever say that about a person ever again. But um, I've always like felt like I was not smart or good enough. And um, I've turned that into like a joke, but given myself a pass, like I'm just not organized and I'm not good at this. And I've used that as an excuse to like, when I've hired my team, not really take responsibility for managing them. Like they do this now because I'm not good at it. Um, and the reality is like, I'm highly intelligent and I'm highly capable and I'm highly responsible and accountable for managing my team in this business. Um, and I think I had some rude awakening, like looking back and being like, who's in charge here? Like, where is the adult supervision? And I am in charge. So um, I don't get a pass because I am very smart and it doesn't matter how much medication I have to take. Um, I am responsible for learning how to lead a team and how to lead a business. And I don't just get to say like, I'm bad at blank because I'm not. And these are learnable skills. And even if you're learning them by screwing up or learning on the job, like you don't get a pass and you can't just pretend like you're bad at something, um, even if you're outsourcing it. So I think that's what I would. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah, that's great advice. I'm not even going to ask another question because I think that's just such great advice here. But I will I will ask just a follow up as far as what's next for you. What are you excited about right now? What's coming up? Um. I am really excited. So we're recording this early April. In May, we're planning on doing something. Um, it's not even fully fleshed out. I wanted to do a promotion for um, the mentorship program that I teach and wanted to do it really easy. It's open enrollment. It's not a launch. And I don't have any bandwidth for a launch. And I don't want to do a, like a special or a promotion or a discount. Um, and I also don't want to ask people to like, trust something that they've never experienced. And so we're doing like an open house kind of thing. This isn't a promo for that. I'm just, or like, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm just excited to try something new and just like basically let people to, they get to just be a student for a month kind of for free and see what that feels like. So I'm excited to just see how that feels. And if that is actually as easy as I think it's going to be, um, there's some other things that may or may not be happening in collaboration this year that I'm really excited about. Um, I don't know. This kind of feels like the year where I get to decide if I want to change everything or keep everything exactly the same and just do it better. And I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but I'm excited to figure it out. So that, that's a bit of a tease uh, that might require hopping onto your email list or checking out your YouTube channel to find out what comes next. So if somebody wants to do that, Britt, where should they go? Um, just go to my website and scroll down to the bottom. It's just the easiest, easiest way to do it. Just, you know how SEO works. Just spell my name and it'll pop up. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming back a second time to hang out with us and share everything 
I always appreciate your honesty and vulnerability and how you just kind of lay it all out there. And it's just always refreshing. So thank you for being so awesome. We appreciate it. I will be in the room with the two of you anytime you let me. (laughs) Every time. That's the end of our interview with Brittany McBean, Kara, before we jump out and do all of the closing things that we do. What else would you like to add to what Brittany shared? Many things, many things. So the whole idea around your role shifting, but not disappearing. So when you hire a junior copywriter, it doesn't mean you're no longer a copywriter and you can hand off the project completely. It just means your role has shifted and you're now a copy chief. Uh, If you hire an assistant, it means that you're now managing that assistant and stepping into the role as a CEO. And so just thinking about those shifts and what that means for you and and celebrating those shifts. Like I know I love the idea of stepping into more of a copy chief role, um, but also knowing that that comes with new responsibilities and, and a need to step into a new role, which requires leadership, could require learning new skills, could require um, stepping into a new identity. And so it's just all part of the growth game that we sign up for when we're building a business. Yeah, I'm glad you said you're stepping into a new identity because Brittany su- suggested that you know this doesn't feel natural. It doesn't always come naturally to us as we shift from role to role. And that means that we've got to grow into it. We've got to experiment a little bit on how do we you know deal with these different assignments or roles that we have to take on. And it to take some time to adjust and to figure it out and get to the point where it actually does feel good. So that doesn't feel natural feeling. Yeah, it, it does go away as we get better at this stuff, but it's very natural to not feel natural about it. I wonder, Rob, for you, if what role, if any, still feels unnatural or, or just surprises you that it feels unnatural? Uh, that's a good question because, I, I mean, I think I've – over the, my career, I've dealt with you know lots and lots of employees who have reported to me. You know, I've been through layoffs, I've been through all of that, and so a lot of that stuff. Um, I don't know that I would say it comes natural. I can do it, but still, you know, when you're talking about people's livelihoods, when you're you know helping them make adjustments in their business, uh, I I like helping people do that, but it's not always something that is easy or that I'm like, oh yeah, this is the obvious thing that we're going to talk about or that we're going to say, or this is the obvious thing you're going to do next. So I think, you know, we grow into that for decades in some cases. How about you? I mean, many, many roles, Uh, like thinking through marketing, you know, and and taking on more marketing projects uh, on a team, even though copywriting is part of a marketing role, it feels really foreign to me. And so I actually had to I really struggled with that recently where I was like, I don't feel like a marketer the way I see other marketers, but I need to be a marketer to <laughs> help the business grow. And so I've had to really figure out a new title and what to call it so that it feels like it fits a little bit better for me. And so what I came up with was uh, growth. Like I'm, I'm focused on growth. I'm not focused on marketing, but just how to grow because I can handle growth. That's a word that feels really comfortable for me. So when I think of it that way, I get really excited and I'm like, oh yeah, I've got this. I've been doing this forever. But marketing, I'm like, no, that's just, it's a turnoff and it doesn't feel like a fit. 
So just relabeling, rebranding the title has helped me. Yeah. And I think a lot of copywriters can do that with even the title of copywriter. Yeah. We all write. Uh, sometimes, you know, people struggle, uh, you know, do I call myself a content writer? Do I call myself a copywriter? Do I call myself a strategist? We've talked about this uh, a few times on the podcast. And while titles don't really matter to our clients, they're usually thinking, you know, like this is the person that can help me solve my website problem or my sales page problem, whatever. Yeah, maybe I need a copywriter. Oftentimes they don't know that it's copy or a copywriter. They just need somebody to help them solve that problem. So thinking through how clients think about this too may help us find the right ways of talking about what this thing is that we do. Yes, copywriting, but how do people see us and look for us? And maybe those are the titles that we we should use too. Whatever you do, do not give yourself the title of freelancer on LinkedIn. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this because I do think that sometimes people are looking for freelancers, but there is there's a lot of baggage that comes along with the title, and uh, I know you know people people sometimes <laughs> get anchored. Right. <laughs> people people get anchored to the you know the idea that uh, freelancers are inexpensive, you know, less expensive than actual employees, and so there are definitely some some negatives that come with it. But, you know, it really comes down to what is it that your clients are looking for when they're looking for the person to solve their problem? And if your clients are going to say, I need a freelance copywriter, then that's what the title should be so that they can find you, right? Unless they're looking for, you know, you specifically by name. But my sense is that maybe most of the time that title doesn't serve us all. Yeah, I agree. If that's what they're looking for, use it. But if it's intentional, use it. But if it's just more of a default, then... Just rethink what it could be. Yeah, and this is why we need to understand our clients and be talking to them and know their needs and you know the kinds of things that they need help with that we can solve. Because if you know that, the title thing becomes a lot easier. And we talk about that with Brittany, right? She mentions the Hunger Games and listening to your consumers. Uh, and she said, you know, listen to the uprising, the frustrations with the the launch space, which is where she operates and the frustrations with all the tactics that are no longer working because the consumer is getting smarter and smarter and sees through it. And so I love that we focused on this conversation about respecting your clients, your consumers, your customers. Um, and I, it really stuck with me. I mean, it's, it's something I knew before we talked about it with Brittany, but just diving deep into it, I really took it into consideration and the copy and the messaging we were using in a, a launch that we just wrapped up for our AI for copywriters course. And even using the language on the cart close date where it was like, you really, you honestly, transparently, you could buy this after we close the cart and the timer expires. You can still get this offer, but you won't get the savings, right, from the promo code. The promo code will expire and you won't get this other bonus because that bonus is happening next week. But you can always get this offer a month from now. And so I think that type of transparency that she talked about, um, it resonated with me. And I think part of that goes back to the conversation with Brittany. It really stood out and um, helped me rethink how we talk about our offers. Yeah, I I like talking about this kind of stuff because there's a side of the marketing world that uh, thinks 
any kind of marketing, uh, even effective tools are evil all the time. You know, things like deadline timers uh, or agitating the pain in sales copy. And I, I know maybe I talk about this too much. I feel like I, I say it a lot, but there is a place for a deadline timer as long as that timer is real, right? Like at when the timer ends, the price goes up or you lose the, you know, you lose the opportunity to have some bonus or whatever. Like those are legitimate reasons to put a timer out there. Whereas, you know, we've seen fake timers that automatically reset and say, you know, there's 40 left. And then as you're looking at the page, there's 39 left and then it's 38 left. And then if you reload the page, the the timer resets and it's like back to 40 left. You like that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's manipulative. That's lame. Don't do it. Same thing with, with agitating copy. There's a way to do it that makes people feel really bad. But if you talk about the pain that your clients feel, you're really using that as an, an opportunity to empathize with them and show them that you know what they're going through and that the solution that you have to offer can actually help them. So I, I shy away from anybody who's like, yeah, marketing stuff is all bad. Uh, and, and look at it as like, well, they're just tools. There's no morality around a timer. What what makes it good or bad is how you're using it. Are you using it to manipulate? Are you using it to help? Are you using it to help people see that there's you know some some time based thing that's happening? In those cases, it's fair use, and it's probably a good idea, uh, oftentimes, to use them. Yeah, I, I think you know agitating pain. That language may not resonate with everyone, but talk about it in a different way. You're speaking to the reader's struggles because everyone is struggling with something. And for me, if you skip over that, then you're missing an opportunity to help that person reading your copy feel seen and understood and for them to feel comfort in knowing that they're in the right place and that the, this person or solution could actually help them. So to skip over it would be a mistake, but maybe it's a different approach and thinking about it differently rather than drilling down into pain and agitation that is no longer serving a purpose, but we're just doing it because we were told to do it. Yeah. I, there was a conversation in one of our groups where we were talking about uh, the PAS formula. And I, I think I suggested it really ought to be PES. You know, it's, it, we are talking about that problem, that pain. Instead of agitating, we're really empathizing. And part of that is talking about the problem. So you, you, we do you know, agitate in some ways, but really we're empathizing and then we pre present a solution. So I don't know if this is my own formula or if somebody said it before, but PES feels better to me than PAS. We want to thank Brittany for joining us on the podcast to talk about what's happening in her business and how she's continuously growing into her CEO role. If you want to connect with her, you can find her at brittanymcbean.com, which we will link to in the show notes. And before we go, we received another five-star review recently that we want to share. MP Black from Denmark shared this on Apple Podcasts. This podcast manages to balance a friendly conversational vibe with in-depth, helpful information on the business and craft of copywriting. I appreciate how often the hosts ask follow-up questions about process pricing, and similar hands-on stuff I'm always wondering about. They also manage to promote their own stuff without coming across as pushy, which is a real copywriting skill, highly recommended. Thanks MP for those kind words. Uh, and in the spirit of promoting our own stuff without coming across as pushy, I want to remind you to visit copywriterthinktank.com to apply to join that mastermind designed to help you grow and scale your business in amazing ways. And if you do it before June 1st, you can join us for that virtual retreat happening 
on June 1st. There are more details at the link, copywriterthinktank.com. All right, I am going to be very pushy right now. If you are listening to this show and you like us enough to listen to the show and you like the guests we bring on, please check out our newest podcast, if you haven't already, all about the different ways we as creatives and copywriters can think about and use AI in our processes, in our businesses, and how we can think about it on more of a societal level as well. And so we are going to talk to a variety of experts and practitioners, uh, and you can find out more about that podcast. You can even get on a list just for that podcast so you don't miss an episode. And you can do that at AI for creativeentrepreneurs.com. All right. So the intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you enjoyed today's episode with Brittany, please visit Apple Podcasts like MP Black did and leave your review of the show and we will share it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club yeah, can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.